0: Here we are, second to last session after lunch. So hopefully you've had enough coffee or whatever you need. Got up and stretched to make sure that you stay awake for the duration. Uh, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and open your Bibles to start with to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12. And of course, Ecclesiastes is known for uh, what? Vanity, right? Futility, vanity, everything is meaningless, everything is worthless. And that's actually, uh, we will get to that in the second verse I'm going to read from. But the first verse actually commends something as not being vain. And this is where in, in chapter 12, which is, of course, Solomon's conclusion to his whole, and he calls himself the preacher, the koheleth. So this is sort of like a sermon. So he's coming to the conclusion of all things, And more well-known probably is verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the end of the matter, or the whole duty of man. But if you back up a little bit further, he's going to give us sort of the, the runway to how that happens. And he emphasizes here, like I said, something that's not vain. Verse 11, the words of wise men. And what do you think he's referring to there? Any guess? What's that? Proverbs could be among the words of the wise men. He's referring to all Scripture. All Scripture. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collected sayings or collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. And there's your exegetical indicator that this is talking about all the Scripture given by one shepherd. Who would that be? Jesus, Jesus the Lord. Yes, Yahweh. So the words of wise men are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They're given by one shepherd and then the vanity part. But in addition to this, my son be warned, the making of many books is endless and much devotion to books is wearying to the flesh. So if anything commends, and this is one of my favorite statements in the Bible on the Bible, uh, anything commends the, the sufficiency of scripture to the exclusion of other things, it would be this text right here. Now, the other aspect of this text I want to point out who knows what a goad is? It's like a gourd and it has these prongs on it. So, what's it used for? Uh, Prodding. Prodding. An or... Yep, and it goes right with the word shepherd later in the verse. A shepherd is going to wield a goad to do what? to prod the sheep to get the sheep to get back on the path or to stay on the path or to go further on the path. That's the purpose of a goad. So the words of scripture are like goads and that's the aspect of the Bible or the characteristic of the Bible I want to point out as we start with the hermeneutics of biblical counseling. We as biblical counselors want to know how to rightly use or to wield the goads of Scripture. They're given by one shepherd. That shepherd knows, and through all of his uh, under-shepherds who have given us the words of Scripture, the prophets and the apostles, he knows and he's told us what the goads are and how to use them with his sheep. And, of course, who's the first sheep that any of us should be concerned about? Well, ourselves. (laughs) And in another context, you get in trouble when you use too much figurative language. Yes, we are the sheeps under the good shepherd. And so I'm the first sheep I should be concerned about when it comes to the goads of Scripture. Am I being rightly goaded? And then I can turn my attention to counselees and others that I come into contact with and use the goads of Scripture in a faithful way in order to see them prodded along the path, helped back on the path, kept on the path, and and so on. Uh, So with that in mind, let's uh, start with a word of prayer, if you would, bow with me. Father, we thank you for your word and the insights that your word gives us about itself, uh, including there in Ecclesiastes 12. Um, Father, we we know this, we know this even from elsewhere in scripture, that you have given to us, uh, and Father, to us in particular in this room as we consider advanced topics of biblical counseling father you've given to us to use your word in faithful ways to help your people and lord that does start with us we want to be those who like the psalmist uh, considered his ways uh, only briefly and then uh, turned his feet to obey your commands hastened and did not delay to obey your commands father we we pray we would have that sensitive heart that you would send your spirit in this hour to help us with that Father, that you give clarity for me in the teaching, and Father, uh, everyone who hears, Lord, that you would help us to have wisdom, uh, Lord, to understand and discern these things, which um, are simpler maybe than they seem, and we tend to overcomplicate them. So, Father, would you make them clear to us and give us hearts to walk in your ways according to your word, which you have clearly revealed to us. We pray it in your name and for your son's glory. Amen. Amen. So, uh, just sort of to get a feel for how uh, we all think about it when we see a title like this, how many of you are familiar and comfortable with the word hermeneutics? Like maybe half. Yeah, and so it's funny, the word itself, hermeneutics, is sort of needlessly intimidating, I think. Uh, It comes from the Greek word hermeneuo, which means to interpret or to expound, but the word itself is connected with the name of a Greek demigod, Hermes who is thought of as creating language. And so it's even a little bit silly where that word comes from. Of course, the Greek demigod Hermes did not create language. God created language. But it just gets to the fact there's a simple definition or a simple way of thinking about hermeneutics. It's the set of principles used in the interpretation of Scripture. That's that's what hermeneutics is. The set of principles used in the interpretation of Scripture. And really, let me just tell you up front what I'm going to be kind of trying to consistently communicate all the way through, and that is that we can read the Bible the same way we read any other form of written communication. Uh, It's way more complex and thorough and has more theological content and import than any other text that's ever been written, but that doesn't mean it needs a different hermeneutic. God-designed language not Hermes, and he designed it in a way that carries communication, carries meaning adequately, sufficiently, clearly. He designed language, and that's his purpose, is for it to clearly carry meaning from whoever's doing the speaking or the writing to whoever's doing the reading or the hearing. So you pick up a bottle of Tylenol, and it says, take two pills every four to six hours. Do you go? Huh? I wonder if that means what it seems to mean. <laughs> no, we're pretty, and we're pretty serious about it in that situation because we don't want to take too much, right? And we want to take enough to get our headache to go away. Well, the same is true of scripture. It just, like I said, is more expansive and and a little bit more complicated than the back of the Tylenol bottle. But again, you take a straightforward or plain approach uh, to how you read the Bible for understanding like you would with any other written communication. So what we're going to go through first is, uh, actually, before we get there, I want to show you uh, the place of hermeneutics in the theological pyramid. How many of you guys have seen the theological pyramid before? Okay, just a few. I was thinking, and I actually sat in on Terry Enza's, uh Theological Foundations, I was thinking he had it in that lecture, but maybe he hasn't, at least for a while. So, the theological pyramid, and you kind of see, you see where hermeneutics is. Where do you guys think biblical counseling would be on here? All the way at the top, practical theology. So this represents why it's worth thinking about this and in advanced topics to dive a little bit deeper into this and think about, okay, how do we use or relate the principles of interpretation to where we spend all of our time? And we have things like the four rules of communication. We'll, we'll pick particular texts like, say, you know, you need to think about forgiveness or reconciliation. Church discipline, go to Matthew 5, Matthew 18. Sexual sin, go to 1 Corinthians 6. Those we're spending, what I just listed off, I'm talking practical theology. But then if you're asked, how do you know? How do you know? And the answer is you have to get all the way from your interpretive principles and how that relates to biblical languages and historical backgrounds through biblical exegesis, biblical theology, systematic theology, and then up to practical theology. So if you're thinking this is more than we can possibly cover in an hour, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) So this is just sort of giving you, you know, hopefully a view of the fact that this is an issue and worthy of further investigation. Um, There are resources, and I think um, one of these is listed in a footnote and the other is not. Uh, And I know some of you, one of you already mentioned this. I had a post on the CBCD blog on, I think it was called Jay Adams and the hermeneutics of biblical counseling. Um, And I'm borrowing from him a lot in this lecture. So you'll see that as we go on. Keith Palmer and I also did a podcast where he asked me a bunch of clarifying questions. And Jeremy uh, Conrad here sitting in the third row has been in our men's theological and biblical training class for two years. So he's heard a lot of this content. I told him, when it gets confusing, ask questions (laughs) so that it can be clarified for everyone. And you all are free to do that too. Just stop me and ask... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just a reminder, we go back farther right to textual criticism. Well, yeah, that would be in here. I mean, I would put that... I would probably even make this its own block and say textual criticism is involved in all of this. When you come... When you come to this point in the in the pyramid, you've probably already worked through your text critical issues, but yeah, it is a it's a factor, yeah, yeah. And for anyone who's unfamiliar with that, that's just a matter of how do we know that the original text, the Greek text or the Hebrew text that I'm working with, is as close to the original text as can possibly be? And praise the Lord, we have the BHS and the NA28 and the UBS5; those texts that underlie uh, the NASB Legacy Standard Bible, ESV. The, those those texts are like, they're so close to the original text, and then the notes that go along with those, we can be very, very confident. That when we're starting from those, we have the original text, essentially. So, yeah, thanks for the clarification. Uh, okay, so that's what we, we need to do is think about, okay, how do we get from the bottom of the pyramid all the way to the top? Or if someone says, okay, how do you know that the four rules of communication are hermeneutically consistent with Paul's intention in Ephesians 4? Was he meaning to teach us four rules of communication? Well, yes, because it's supported by the work that's represented by the entire theological pyramid. All right. Uh, And just to point out sort of why this is a concern, that's one extreme maybe, and, and I have a couple of examples here, and some of you may have heard of these. When you get to, and this isn't, thankfully, and this is what we strive for, when you sit through foundations and you get all these proof texts, those proof texts are backed up by the work of the theological pyramid. Ephesians 4, a legitimate outworking of that is the four rules of communication. But you've probably heard others, like the pastor, and I've actually seen video of this, so I know it's real, who says, I hope you like sheep. You guys heard that one? Because all believers like sheep. It says so in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep. <laughs> now that one's obvious. And and the next one I'm going to share is, is maybe also pretty obvious, but a little bit less so. This one I heard from Stuart Scott, who had seen it on uh, an inspirational sort of devotional calendar for Christians. And it said, uh, from Luke 4, 7, Therefore, if you worship me, it shall all be yours. <laughs> Whose words are those? Right. So there are, and there are, there are, that's a pretty bad one. I didn't say there are worse ones, but that's, that's a pretty bad one. When we're not attentive, and and that's just real sloppiness, it can be be more uh, subtle than that. But there's that issue when you just, all you say is, I just want to know something inspirational. I just want to sit in this area of practical theology, and you don't relate it to the rest of the hermeneutical pyramid. You're in trouble. And that's probably more what we would tend to as biblical counselors. If we're going to fall off the balance beam, it's going to be likely on that side seminary students, and I'll pick on my seminary, Master's Seminary, has a tendency to more just stay down here in the bottom. And and some of you may have experienced this, and hopefully not. I think Master's has actually gotten better at this over the years. The guys who are fresh out of seminary and they get in the pulpit and they tell you this is the genitive of source, and so <laughs> you should take away and go meditate on that, that the righteousness of God is a genitive of source. Now be warmed and be filled. And that's, I mean, I've referred to it as an exegetical dump. They, you just, you you major on biblical languages, hermeneutics, historical backgrounds, and biblical exegesis. And you just give your exegesis and say, well, it's the job of the Holy Spirit now to apply that for you. And that's not the biblical model, as we'll go on to look at. It needs to go all the way up. So that's kind of what I'm after in talking about the biblical, the hermeneutics of biblical counseling is and for us again we 're going to have more of a tendency to dwell up at the top and not to know how to go down or to, to be coming up from the bottom. Um, so this is just sort of an introduction and and either way i 've actually seen biblical counselors who become aware of the possibility of proof texting and end up being more like the seminary grads who wanted to just stay down here and emphasize the exegesis. Let me give you some exegetical observations and you go home and meditate on those uh, That could be helpful. But probably you want to make it much more pointed than that, like a goad, like it talks about in Ecclesiastes 12. So those are the two extremes we want to avoid. So we're going to start, and this I'm going to do probably fairly quickly, is talk about the components, and you guys have probably heard these before, the components of the biblical hermeneutic, that a biblical hermeneutic is literal, grammatical, and historical. You guys heard that before? That sounds pretty familiar? Most of you, yes. So I'm going to explain that just a little bit again. If any of this is unclear, um, ask questions. But this is pretty standard. Uh, and this part, is, if you read Jay Adams on these issues, he just sort of assumes. If you're, if you're coming to the Bible as a serious reader of the Bible, you've already got this part covered. So he spends way more of his time on the rest of it. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. But literal... Literal, another way of thinking about that, and the question would be, does this mean we read the Bible literalistically and there's no room for figurative language? And the answer to that is no. Literal is after the author's intent. So if the author used figurative language, you interpret it, and usually he gives you some indication, like the dragon stands for Satan or something like that. The woman is Israel, uh, Revelation 12. So figurative language that's explained, or it's not explained, but it's fairly obvious. Uh, in any, in either case, you're after not sort of a wooden literal interpretation. You're after whatever the author intended to communicate. And I have there the human author. And you might think, well, doesn't the Bible have divine words? And the answer is yes, which is why I have in parentheses there divine confluence, uh, which is a term I think Herman Bovink or B.B. B. Warfield popularized, just to say... The authorial intent of scripture is always 100% human and 100% divine. The human author intends the same thing the divine author intends. And we see this, you guys probably can recognize this if I point out some of the introductory formulas when earlier scriptures are being cited, and it's interchangeable. It could say, as David says, and then it's a quote, as the scripture says, and then it's a quote, as the holy spirit says and then it's a quote as god says somewhere and then it's a quote all those are interchangeable because the scripture means what god means what the prophet means right 100% confluence divine confluence so when we say it's literal it's after whatever the author intends and i this you'll you'll pick up on this again it's helpful to emphasize the human aspect because that's what God has given us in how he's designed language. He's designed the language we use as human language. So I find one of the most helpful questions, and this is all the way through the exegetical process to application, is if Moses were here, would he agree with me? That, that once we're in this context, and I can see probably, I'll give you an example of where I think Paul was asking that question, if Moses were here and, and all this stuff had come to pass in the meantime and he had this new revelation, would he say this was the application of his text? Absolutely, Moses would be in agreement. And and that a key thing, and I'll say this, you can write it down if you want, the writers themselves were excellent exegetes and theologians. The writers of Scripture themselves, they were exegeting earlier texts and they were doing theology with it. And they were better exegetes and theologians than we are. So you have to really esteem highly the prophets and the apostles to see what they're doing. And it's, I'll give you some examples later that I think will give, a, they tend to give me, uh, I have more respect for the, for the writers when I see the complexity of their thought and how they're consistently and contextually applying the scriptures. Okay, so that's the first component of a biblical hermeneutic is it's literal. Any questions on that one? All right. Second component, it's historical. It's historical. And where this gets challenged the most is, yeah, I mean, you guys probably know this, doubt that the Bible in some cases actually records history. Like whether that's the virgin birth or it's the resurrection or it's the conquest, six-day creation. There's challenges at every front. So it's important to emphasize whatever the Bible records as history is actual history, And another component of this is, and I like this phrase, history actualizes theology. You can think of history as being like God's stage for displaying his theology, his story. That's right. So as we see things progress, and this explains why there are similarities. Do you guys catch similarities sometimes between the life of Jeremiah and the life of Paul? And Paul catches that. He uses language from jeremiah to describe his own calling similarities between the life of joseph and the life of david or the life of david and the life of jesus the life of everyone in the life of jesus well that's because is god changing or unchanging unchanging as history changes and people come and go in history there's a reason it rhymes his theology is constant so the way his promises work out the way the lives of his people, the way he uses suffering in the lives of his people, there's a consistency to it. And so you've probably heard that adage, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And we see that in scripture too. And we refer to that sometimes as typology. But in any case, those are aspects of our hermeneutic being historical. We see those things, they make sense because God and his theology are unchanging. History is progressive and so things change. And then you can add this. I should have had this as a note in your notes. The text, this is really the emphasis when it comes to hermeneutics. The text must be understood in its historical context. That makes sense? So it was written in a context. The author had a given understanding in context, the historical situation where he lived. That affected his choice of words, uh, shared assumptions in the context in which he was writing about what this meant or what this tradition was about, this cultural uh, aspect, and so we have tools that tell us about the culture from the time of the Bible writers, so that we can think about, okay, what would this text? And that's what we're after first. What would this text have meant in the situation where it was written? That's the first question to ask. In terms of, and again, literal kind of encompasses the whole thing because we look at the historical to get to authorial intent. We're still after the human authorial intent. All right, questions on the historical. Okay, third component, grammatical. Grammatical. The means of biblical communication is human words in their plain sense. And so there's overlap, of course, between this and the historical, which is why we have what we call lexicons or the, the original language dictionaries, where, and this is wonderful, all kinds of mainly German and mainly mainly German unbelievers have done all this work to, def- to provide us excellent resources that explain to us what the words in Scripture meant in their original context. And so as we avail ourselves of that res- those resources, again, kind of like with the text criticism thing, we can have a high level of confidence that that research has been so thorough we have a very good understanding, and the, the, the um, uh, documentation history of all this is so consistent as you go through the centuries, we know to a a huge degree, like approaching 100% certainty, what the various words of scripture meant in their original context. So it's the grammar, the meanings of the words, and then the syntax, how those words relate to each other. That's where you look. And so that's back to the um, uh, theological pyramid. All of this is represented at that very base foundation, biblical languages, hermeneutics, and historical backgrounds. And as those things come together, exegesis, all that word means is leading the meaning out. You're leading the meaning out of the text. And, and that starts with what did this text mean? As the words carried the meaning intended by the author, both divine and human, what did it mean in its original historical context? You're leading that meaning out and, and speaking it in English for us and ways that are, and so we have everything from more word-for-word translations to even dynamic equivalent, none of them is the original language, but we can call all of them the word of God because it's a faithful representation of what was in the original, and again with a very high degree of confidence. So one of the effects this should have is giving us a high degree of confidence that what we hold in our hands when we hold our English Bibles is the word of God and can be read and understood and applied and used as the goads it's intended to be. All right, so those are the three components, basic components of a biblical hermeneutic. Any questions so far? All right, so second major section here is now we're getting into uh, jay adams and what he uh wrote about mainly he talked about this a little bit but I, I actually don't have any lectures where he talked about it uh his model that he calls telic hermeneutics uh, and how many of you guys have actually sat under dr adams anyone in here well, we've done Video. Um, yeah. okay yeah yeah that's right uh, yeah online okay online yeah and and yeah of course he was active in this movement for so long and and kind of got it started back in the late sixties, early seventies uh, in terms of reclaiming uh, the private ministry of the word for the church, which is you know soul care uh, that had been outsourced to uh, secular counseling way too much uh, and of course, as someone who is pioneering in this movement he needed to be able to turn Scripture or use Scripture in such a way that it was practical to address the issues of life. So, you know, when it comes to four rules of communication and uh, the teachings on confession and forgiveness, and you guys have probably noticed this, and you noticed this at this conference, that we borrow from each other constantly. <laughs> so I forget who was just telling me. Oh, it was Pastor Randy. He was doing... Um, uh, giving instruction, I think, and homework is the lecture he was doing in track one. And he got Pastor Dan's notes, and he was like, these are the exact same notes that I got from Stuart Scott back in 2007. <laughs> in all likelihood, someone got those from Dr. Adams and gave them to Stuart Scott at some point. And that that really is the case. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this, those of you who've been exposed to Jay Adams. And this is something that's always struck me about him. And this is part of why, actually, as I was doing PhD work in this area, I went and looked at, because I was just wondering, how does he so consistently take scriptures and just say, this is what they mean and how they apply? And as Adams does that, I, I don't think I've ever found a situation where I'm like, I'm not sure that's right it just always seems so direct and clear and authoritative. And the answer I found is this. So uh, if you don't understand this all in this hour, that's okay. It it took me a lot of (laughs) wrestling and time and research and looking at this. Um, Again, the podcast, which is Hermeneutics and Biblical Counseling on the cbcd.org, a lot of question and answer between me and Keith Palmer on there that could be helpful in clarifying. But I'll try to unpack this. Uh, some and hopefully some ways that will be helpful um, in the rest of our time together here, which goes until 345, so we're only halfway through. I think we're in a pretty good spot. Uh, okay, so telic hermeneutics, and you might, it's funny, hopefully this isn't as intimidating as the word hermeneutics, but it might be. Telic, and you might recognize this already, comes from the Greek word telos. And if that's not immediately familiar, maybe the word to telestai Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. And all the word telos means is coming to the end, the goal, the purpose of something. And so that's what was happening when Jesus said telestai was coming to the end. And that that marked the end of his life uh, prior to his death and resurrection. So telos or telic hermeneutics is a matter of focusing on the goal, the end, the purpose for which the text was written. And I probably have a quote in here somewhere, I'll just tell you off the top of my head now. What Adams would say should govern, and I would agree with this, um, after having sort of followed what he's doing here, what should govern the process, all the way actually starting with your historical grammatical analysis, all the way through when you make your application, is the question, what was the purpose for which this text was written? What is its telos? What is its telos? So we'll unpack that as we go. Uh, what I will say also sort of up front, and this is the next slide, is that all of this, the pyramid that or that that triangle here, all of it represents the pursuit of authorial intent. So back to that literal component of hermeneutics, it represents the pursuit of authorial intent. And And let me just point out, and this might not be too surprising to some of you, there's some discomfort especially in circles at my seminary Master's seminary about the idea of including application as part of hermeneutics um does that make sense why there would be discomfort with that yeah Yeah, it's because application feels like it's subjective that makes sense whereas hermeneutics feels like it should be rock solid we're certain about the historical meaning that's being led out of the text in exegesis application gets off into there could be a million of them, and how can you be anything other than subjective? But I'd say Adams has persuaded me. (laughs) Uh, And one of the ways he did it, I think it's in his book, Preaching with Purpose. So, and let me just mention, I'll mention this later, but three books of his. Uh, What to Do on Thursday. And that's more the lay level. Just how can a lay person read their Bible for clear understanding and application? And then Preaching with Purpose, which is geared towards preaching students, but still going to be helpful as he unpacks these concepts. And then Truth Applied. And when he got to a certain chapter in Preaching with Purpose, he said, this needs a whole book, which I'll do later. And he did. And it's called Truth Applied. And that's that's the concept I'm going to appeal to now, is he says, and I think he's right about this, when we come to the text and say, how does this apply? That's the wrong question the question should be, how has the Holy Spirit already applied it? All truth is given as truth applied. And this is something that's unique to Scripture, and again, he persuaded me of this. I think his example was Philippians 2, where it talks about Jesus emptying himself. Have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto, but made himself nothing or emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being humbled even to the form of a slave, uh, um, yeah, being found in appearance as a man and then humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, taking on a death, experiencing going through a death that was worthy of someone who was worthy of curse. Uh, and so that's considered, and this is the point Adams is making when he, when he appeals to this, like one of the most important Christological statements in the Bible, right? About the nature of the incarnation what it was relative to the human and divine natures of Christ and how that relates to his eternal existence as God and what he was seen as he was a man on earth and went through his death. Now, we in a systematic theology will lay all that out under Roman numeral 1, uh letter A, small Roman numeral 1, you know what I mean, and just here are the truths that the implications of this, but that's not how Paul does it. It's in the midst of this letter to the Philippians, and what's his point there? Exactly. Humble yourselves. Have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ. All truth, including the most profound Christological truth in the Bible, is given as truth applied. So there's not too much difficulty when you come to that text, where there shouldn't be. Too often, you could get this sermon from that that would say, Christological point one, Christological point two, Christological point three, and wouldn't say... Humble yourselves. And in and, and that case, you haven't used the goad. You maybe have said, there's the goad up on the shelf, isn't it nice? And, and let the Holy Spirit then do the applying. But there should be an exhortation. Hum, have this mind in yourself, which is also in Christ. And then you can glean those Christological truths also and worship him for it. That's what the text goes on to do. Yes. So, yeah, you can principalize with it, you mean? So you, you you take the historical meaning, glean a principle, and then use the principle in your situation. Yes, and I'll give an example later. It's, it's usually, so there's a question. Oh, I have a whiteboard in here. Is the audience historical, and you cross a bridge to the contemporary, and that's sort of the principalizing bridge, like grasping God's word would say it that way. Adams would say, bring those circles together. The writers knew they were writing not just for their own readers. Now, there are differences, and, and one of the ways I explain this is, and I was explaining it to Jeremy the other day, <laughs> I said to him, uh, do you come to church and sit quietly and then go home and ask your husband if you have a question? And Jeremy said, well, no, <laughs> right? And I said, so does, and does Sarah preach the word in season and out of season? And the answer is, well, no. Those, so, but those texts are given for both Jeremy and Sarah, and they can both benefit. Another example that I used in that conversation was, um, and this one we use a lot. So the qualifications for elder. Uh, if I'm just, you know, a housewife, say, or my daughter reading through the qualifications for elder, and she, she gets to the one about being peaceable. And she's convicted because she fought with her sister yesterday. Well, is she misreading and misapplying that text because it's for elders? No. Is she not the immediate audience of that text? She is. Not in the exact same way I am as an elder of this church. There is a more immediate application for me than there is for my daughter. But I think Adams would encourage us to bring the idea away from principalizing and more towards its truth already applied. There's a similarity to it, but I think I found it helpful to sort of bring those spheres together. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, and I'll give another example later that I think will help with that. Okay, so all of it is the pursuit of authorial intent. It starts with a historical grammatical analysis. And Adams is really clear on this. Here's a quote from him. He says, The, law of grammar, the laws of grammar must be observed. God gave us his revelation in written language. He expects us to know something of the parts of speech and their use. (laughs) Right? So if we just come at it, like we can dive bomb into a text, pick up a few words. And that's my verse for the day. That's not paying attention to the way God gave his word. He gave it in words that have syntactical relationships and you have to pay attention to all of that. Uh, Historical. Also, he has this example, Because we know that for Jesus to take up his cross meant to carry it up to Golgotha and be crucified on it, it would be a wrong interpretation to suggest that the cross simply represents burdens we must bear bear, rather than a radical call to put our own sinful ways and desires to death. So he's pointing to the history of the cross and saying we have to pay attention to the history. This is history as it was actually given. We can't just lift it out of its historical context and make it whatever we want to be. And, and the classic one that often gets mentioned is my, my wife is my cross to bear. No, <laughs> your cross is you lay down your life for your wife, right? There's historical aspects of the text. The text is historical and it safeguards. It puts guardrails around what our applications can be. So it starts with historical grammatical analysis at the bottom there and then proceeds up uh, to literary rhetorical analysis, um, and this is where genre comes in. And I won't say a whole lot about genre other than to say be cautious about genre override uh, where you say all prophecy is figurative. So you just take anything in prophecy and it's probably figurative. You don't want to do that. You want to discern how the author intended to use figurative language and what his literal referent was, right? So there are usually indicators. I think MacArthur says that the plain sense... Makes good sense to seek any other sense is nonsense. Uh, but if the plain sense doesn't make good sense and it's probably figurative, then seek the literal referent of that. So you consider that. The other thing, and this is this is to me maybe the most important aspect of genre, Scripture itself is a genre. Scripture itself is a genre. And the 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 quote that I read that I started with from Ecclesiastes 12 tells you one of the most important ways in which scripture is a genre. And this would be, so genre is just a shared understanding between the author and his audience about the kind of communication he's giving. Probably should have put that in your notes. <laughs> genre is a shared understanding between the author and his audience about the kind of communication he's giving. So that's why we have to get our heads around, okay, is there figurative language? Did the author, because I need that shared understanding, is he trying to communicate with me in figurative language? Well, more importantly, the authors always knew they were giving goads. Oh, yeah. So genre is a shared understanding between the author and his audience about what kind of communication he's giving. So the important thing here is the author knew he was giving scripture which is like goads. So there's always a purpose to move the people of God along in their understanding, in their lives, in their sanctification, in their history, their understanding of history, all of the above. Uh, literary rhetorical analysis. Um, and I, I already mentioned this. Essentially, you have to take uh, the text in its context. Uh, the most important context of scripture is Scripture. And so there's a directionality to this. Every text has as its context all the available text at that time. Does that make sense? So the context of Matthew includes Genesis, but it doesn't include Revelation. So you'll see this, and we'll get to this in a moment. Frequently, authors allude to and quote earlier texts. Do authors ever allude to and quote later texts? No, because they don't have access to them. So it's only the text that that author would have had access to that you have to pay attention to, okay, where does this fit in everything he knew up to this point? And then, of course, later texts may allude to and further develop applications of that author's text. And so that earlier text becomes context for later texts and this again is at the level of sentence paragraph major section book testament and then the whole bible so that's literary rhetorical analysis next biblical and systematic theological analysis and this starts you could say actually it could go the other way around but i've got here little little uh, roman numeral one comparison with other texts and doctrines uh, and again, this is connected with the fact that history actualizes theology. How often does God give the theology of sacrifice in Scripture? Over and over and over and over again, right? So, if there are other texts that bear on the theology of this text, it's a good idea to compare. And this is, we do this in a common sense way. If we're reading or starting to understand this text in a way that you go, well, that's not what all these other texts say about sacrifice. Well, then I probably need to adjust the way I'm reading this text. Right? That makes sense. And that's so you're you're adjusting it against other texts and against your formulation. I mean, I'm doing that just on the fly as I think about sacrifice. I have in my head a doctrine that's been formed hopefully just by scripture that then when I'm reading about that doctrine in this text, the way I'm understanding it is being compared, even in my mind, with my systematic understanding of that doctrine from other texts. So when you go back, and if you want to look back at the pyramid uh, back on the front, this is getting us all the way up, because biblical theology is just comparing that text with other texts, and then systematic theology is as you've systemized your doctrine... And systematic theology is just the comp- compilation of what all of Scripture says about a certain topic. We do systematic theology in our heads all the time. So as we go through these steps, we're working our way up the pyramid. Right? Make sense? Which is exactly how Adams has it in his triangle. Those conveniently compare well. Uh, Okay, so that's comparison with other texts and doctrines. This phenomenon is really going to be more a part of your exegesis. So it actually, I probably should have put it first. This is scripture's use of scripture. And you guys know what I'm talking about with that when it's, sometimes it's really obvious. A later author is quoting an earlier author, the words are the same, or they even give an introductory formula that says, as the prophet says, or as Isaiah says. Sometimes it's less obvious. Sometimes it's more of an echo. And you pick up on enough details in a text, you're like, he has this other text in mind. And that can take some thinking about and some argumentation and even some like, how often do these two words appear together? Or these three words in this sequence? Only happens one other time in the whole Bible. Okay, that author probably had in mind this other text. So it can be, you know, more or less obvious that there's an allusion or a citation, but it happens, as you guys are probably well aware, all the time. That's scripture's use of scripture. And I put here number two, this should be encouraging to us as biblical counselors with a sufficiency model for life, that scripture has a sufficiency hermeneutic. We can learn our hermeneutic from the way the authors use the text of scripture. Now, that could be a little bit misleading if it's not understood correctly, because of number three. Most often, the writers are not giving you their interpretations. Most often, the writer is not giving you his interpretation of an earlier text. Most often, he's giving you an application or an implication, which again supports the idea that the authors themselves see scripture as goads. The scripture is meant to come into contact with people and situations at later times and and connect, and I I actually refer to it as forming a compound goad, (laughs) a bunch of goads put together, and you'll find that. An author in a context will cite three or four different scriptures. You can look back and see that those authors kind of alluded to each other in their contexts, and you're following these threads through the Bible that this is what was anticipated by the writers as redemptive history progressed. And so things have developed, and this is things both in history and in Revelation. Because the apostles, for example, are getting new revelation, right? So the apostles, as they get new revelation and then say a problem comes up in Corinth, right? So Paul has an issue in Corinth, and I'll give you just a sneak peek of one of the texts I'm going to um, appeal to, which Adams does a lot, 1 Corinthians 9, where uh, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25 and says, uh, do not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, well, he's telling the Corinthians, and he says this in First Timothy also, you need to be willing to pay your gospel workers, right? If God is concerned, or God isn't concerned for oxen, is he? No, this was written for us. Pay your gospel workers. Well, there's this new situation. Paul has new revelation. There's been all this new revelation given to God's people in the New Testament. And there's this new position of someone who goes around ministering God's word in the way that Paul and his associates did. And so Paul is saying, and Paul, this is where those two circles kind of converge. Paul is saying, this was written for us. We are the immediate audience, in a sense. I mean, not as immediate as Israel on the plains of Moab. But in a sense, we are the immediate audience for this. And you should be immediately convicted. If you read Deuteronomy 25, you should be immediately convicted that you should be paying your gospel worker. So it's the progress of history and then the progress of revelation means that that scripture needs to be cited in this context and applied in this way. Most of the time when you see an allusion or a quotation in scripture, it's not an interpretation, it's an application or an implication. And so here, in terms of how this is a sufficiency hermeneutic, the writers are training us. And so, and maybe to hopefully put your minds at ease a little bit, you, are, you have already been trained by this as you've read your Bibles. So you already do some of this, you already do a lot of this intuitively. You know, the the reason to unpack it and look at it the way we are is to be able, when someone says, hey, do the four rules of communication, is that really exegesis of Ephesians 4? And you can, I mean, you can either go ask your pastor to help with it, or you go through this process and you say, yeah, this is how this works. You go all the way from the historical grammatical to the telecanalysis, and that's, that's how this works. Or like the writers, <laughs> and, and praise the Lord, we're usually in a situation like this. We're talking to someone who has the Holy Spirit, and we can, we can like they did, give a few words from a verse and give them the application and say, now, you need to go and do that, and they're going to trust us. Now, is that always the case? No. But that's, that is a grace of the Lord, that we can use Scripture that way, like the writers did, and it's effective because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and people grow and change. Okay, so, biblical and systematic theological analysis. Any questions at all at the moment around this specifically? All right. So, now we get to actually practicing it, and I've probably stolen some of my later materials, so we'll go through this and maybe save some time. Uh, This is the application of this, interpreting for purpose, and this is lifted from the, the blog post I wrote. Scripture, scripture was written in such a way, and this is its genre, that it should be approached by the interpreter with the assumption that it has a discernible purpose at every level from the whole Bible to the smallest preaching or counseling portion. Therefore, the entire hermeneutical task from start to finish can be characterized as a pursuit of the purpose of the text. So every time you're coming to a text, and this can be just in your quiet time, this is something I tend to do, you know, if I'm done with a chapter I just read and maybe my mind was a little checked out, <laughs> I'll look back at that chapter and say, how does the Lord want me to change in response to this chapter? And as my eyes, you know, hit what I just read, usually it hits me pretty quickly. And again, intuitively, I've gone through the process that, that I'm unpacking in more detail here. So this is how scripture should be approached is with an understanding that it it was written uh, with a discernible purpose at every level, from the whole Bible to the smallest preaching or counseling portion. So practical pointers for the practice of a telic approach. Uh, And I'm going to give you some representative examples, and then you think about that as you think about and look at the rest of Scripture. Uh, First, pay attention to deductive indicators of Purpose. Let me catch up in my notes here. There we go. Pay attention to deductive indicators of purpose. And deductive would just be individual statements about Scripture that apply deductively to various parts, generally, of the whole Bible, or to just various parts of it. Like I've done with Ecclesiastes 12:11, all of Scripture is like goads. That's I'm deductively applying that to all of Scripture. Another example is uh, 2 Timothy 3:16. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So as you look at a text, you can say, is this for teaching? Is it for reproof? Is it for correction? Is it for training in righteousness? And how? You start to discern what's the purpose of this text, you know, in those four categories. Any of the four or more than one. Another one, deductive indicator of purpose. For the whole law is fulfilled in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So from this text that I'm studying, how does God want to goad me to love my neighbor? That's a deductive indicator of purpose. You find statements like this elsewhere in the Bible. Of course, you find these statements because it tends to be repetitive. So Jesus says something similar, right? about the the purpose of the whole law being love of God, love of neighbor, right? So you find those throughout. You can apply them in your study. Ask those questions from the deductive indicators elsewhere in the text. Uh, Pay attention, and this is maybe even a little bit more important, to inductive indicators of purpose. Inductive would just be a writer's indication of his purpose for a particular text, right? Writers often do this. An example being... Uh, from 1 John, John gives his purpose statement in 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So you can go through the text of 1 John and say, how does this pericope tell me I may know I have eternal life? And that's a helpful, actually, purpose question to ask as you go through 1 John, because that is the reason for which John wrote the book. So you're taking that inductive cue in First John and then applying it deductively to the rest of the book because that is the purpose for which John wrote. Another example, this is closer in context for Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4, talking about eschatological truths he's been talking about. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What's the purpose for which Paul gives? At least one of the purposes for which Paul gives these truths is that you may be comforted. So use it that way. Pay attention to why the author himself tells you He's writing a text. There's there's your purpose that you want to minister. Uh, interpreting for purpose, practical pointers for practice still. Uh, minister commanded applications with authority. And that's just maybe obvious, um, but it's helpful for contrast. So Ephesians six, four. Uh let me read it here. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'm going to minister that in a very straightforward way. You don't have an option. You have to not provoke your children to anger. You have to raise them in the nurture and admonition or the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So you minister commanded applications with authority, and that's in contrast with ministering some implementations as suggestions. And uh, there's a is this in the footnotes, I think? Um, I don't know what number it would be, but as Adam's notes, Jesus provides... The ultimate example of giving implementations in his sermon on the mount, from Adams preaching with purpose. That's a helpful chart he has, where he gives uh, the truth and its implementation in Jesus' sermon. Um, examples of this, and I wrote some out here. So these would be examples of um, how to implement Ephesians 6:4, and you give these as suggestions, like schedule a talk with your wife at least once a month about weather expectations for the children. Whether those are goals, chores, education, other aspects of training, are reasonable or tending to exasperate the kids. So, do you have to do that once a month on a scheduled basis? No, it's a suggestion for an implementation. Right? You see the difference between the command and it's, then it's almost an illustration or like a, a suggested implementation. Helps you put a finer point or a more practical point on how to fulfill the purpose of that text. Uh, another, on the second part of Ephesians 6-4, set a goal for reading, singing, and praying together as a family right after dinner at least five times per week. Now, is that chapter and verse, can I administer that as a command with authority? No, but it's an illustration of how to fulfill the purpose of Ephesians 6-4. It's an implementation of it. So that's the distinction between... Uh, Commands and then implementations that can sometimes be as suggestions. Now, Jesus gives implementations in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which are more, of course, because they're coming from Jesus, authoritative and actually function themselves as commands. But they are, how do you work this out? Like, um, like don't commit adultery. Don't even have lustful thoughts in your heart. Put them to death. That's an implementation. Of course, he's ministering that with authority. And you'll find those again in that chart in Adam's Preaching with Purpose. So then you want to take that. You want to take those tele cues, is what Adam refers to them as, and then work those out again at every level of Scripture, at the sentence, the paragraph, major section, book, testament, whole Bible. As you go through, you're thinking, what is the purpose? How is, and I find, again, Jeremy knows this from (laughs) hearing it repeatedly, that idea of being goaded. How am I going to be goaded by this? I want to ask that first. And then how does the person, and again, we do this with gentleness. We're not you know, stabbing the sheep with the goad, but we want them to be on the path and continue on the path of godliness, transformation, the whole goal of life change to God's glory that we seek in biblical counseling. We are very close to the end of our time. Any questions on all of that? Yeah, when you might, if you haven't already, um, I think my blog post is referenced there. Um, So that would be a good one. And then the podcast Q&A, those would be quicker ways probably to get a little bit more. If you wanted to dive in more then yeah, I would probably start with what to do on Thursday. Um, And then probably preaching with purpose. That gets a little bit more technical. And then truth applied, which teases out a particular section. Of preaching with purpose. Good. All right. Well, let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you, Father, for the way that you've given us your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be encouraged as we go out from this session, as we go out from this weekend. Lord, that you've given us a sufficient word, that you've given us a clear revelation. And Father, that uh, all the way from the whole Bible to the smallest text, You have given us a discernible purpose. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd help us not to be uh, confused or frustrated if we can't always discern your purpose. Lord, we know that you uh, help us and enable us and and give us the equipping, including from a weekend like this, Lord, that you have for us in order that we would not be perfect in this, but, Father, that we would progress in seeking to bring your word to bear on our own hearts. And, Father, as you give us ministry, Lord, that we would be fruitful in it. I pray, Father, for each of the people in this room that as we go from here, Uh, that we would, that we would be quick to fulfill uh, what Paul has said, that we would bear others' burdens in love and so fulfill the law of Christ as we put into practice uh, what we've learned here this weekend. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.